You ever notice how English has different words for the the form of an animal when it's cooked versus when it's raw ingredient versus when it's a living animal? Except for chicken. Except for chicken. And turkey and fish. It, it tends to be associated with the ones that are higher in economic status. That's true. And the uh, and the prepared dish tends to have a uh, Latin or French root, as opposed to the Anglo-Saxon root for the animal itself. Interesting. And of course, this goes back to the Norman Conquest and when the French were sort of ruling by proxy over England, right? And so that the the prepared dish was for the lords, while it was still up to the Anglo-Saxon peasants to to raise the animals. So you have, you know, cow, beef, pig, pork. I don't know if those are, but something similar happens with peppers or, or plants that are roasted and turned into spice, right? So green pepper is green pepper until it's roasted and ground, and then it becomes chipotle. Coriander is simply the seed of cilantro, ground and mixed. Several other peppers are, are the same, the, the pepper and the roasted ground spice uh, have a different name. Does it have a similar sort of class element? Although ch- ch- Chipotle does sound fancy, right? It'd be like, here's ground bell pepper. You're like, Ugh, here's Chipotle. Ooh. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I don't know. If, I don't know if you could have a, a, a nationwide restaurant franchise called Roasted Ground Bell Pepper. Yeah, but what if you had one called Chipotle? Some commentators cast the renewed fury of the Christian far right in recent years as the final lashings out of an increasingly irrelevant fringe, while others see in this group a renewed and rising fascist tendency in American politics. In order to tease out these and other threads, we are investigating the Christian far right. This is All the Rage. So what are we what are we discussing what are we discussing tonight, Thomas? Not tonight. What are we discussing this episode, Thomas? This this episode we are um, the same thing we're discussing every episode. <laughs> the the plot to take over the world, Pinky, <laughs> which is not terribly wrong. Uh, yes, we are somehow not even halfway through. The statement on Christian nationalism and the gospel, uh, which has me wondering, are we paying this more attention than even the authors of it have? Maybe we are. Well, at this point, it it sure looks like it. <laughs> they, they still have the notice up. Uh, they still have listeners. You will not be hearing this until August, but they still have the note up that says in mid July, they're going to have a council to hammer out the final form of this thing. And uh, it does not appear to be in its final form yet. Uh, it is still rife with uh, typographical issues and formatting issues. Nevertheless, it is such a, a pure distillation of this, this particular form of like neo-Calvinist Christian nationalism uh, that I think it deserves uh, continued attention. Because really, you know, there's a sense in which these are not episodes about the statement on Christian nationalism and the gospel so much as that serves as a lens to discussing these various uh, subjects and issues within uh, Christian nationalist discourse or even just conservative Christian discourse, right? Last time there was a, we had a real focus on secular uh, secular democracy, right? Which is kind of what they're at war with, but also secularism in general, the definition of secularism. Uh, there's a bit more of that in especially the first point that we'll be looking at today. But a lot of what we're looking at is um, a phrase that has become really central to Christian reconstructionism in general, kind of a one of their central organizing concepts. And uh, go ahead and... Um in just a moment, define Christian Reconstructionism for listeners who may not be familiar with that. Um, but first, some some good news, if if I may. Um, I recently attended the General Assembly for the Christian Church Disciples of Christ, uh, the denomination that I recently transferred my ordination to. 
Um, and at the General Assembly, uh, they overwhelmingly passed a resolution opposing Christian nationalism, which was quite encouraging. Uh, so it was there was about 3000 or so in attendance, uh, as it was reported. And it was a it was a verbal uh, vote. But I only heard three, maybe four nays. Now we were in, in Louisville. So hearing nays is not uncommon. <laughs> Sorry. Kentucky Derby joke. It's terrible. Um, <laughs> <laughs> wow. <laughs> wow. Uh, that just came to me on the fly. I didn't even plan that, um, which might be hard to believe given the, the quality of that joke. <laughs> uh, <laughs> get chat GPT in here to explain that. <laughs> uh, uh, um but anyway, so the I mean, Disciples of Christ is a pretty well-known progressive denomination. However, um, a, a round condemnation of Christian nationalism uh, as an official resolution with very little uh, debate. I think there were only two people who spoke in opposition to the resolution. In other words, they didn't think we ought to oppose it. Um, but one of them was because they don't want Christian nationalism to be co-opted by the bad guys. So they're like, no, we, we affirm everybody and that's American. And so we, we, we should take back, you know, Christian nationalism. So it was, it was coming from still a decent place. And then somebody else who, you know, very like, but it doesn't this go against our, our calls for unity. This, you know, this is divisive, right. To, to make us. So, those were the only two who spoke uh, against the resolution. Se- even several military chaplains in uniform stood up uh, and voiced their support for the, the resolution to oppose Christian nationalism. So it was a very encouraging uh, weekend to see them take such a such a hard stand. I, I don't know if they listen to our podcast. I don't know if we can take any credit for, for that movement. We probably can't. Um, <laughs> but, you know... Still encouraging nonetheless. Finally, someone started pushing back on Christian nationalism, <laughs> and and uh, and now now it's turning into a real wave. That's right. No, that is that is, that is great. How was the rest of the uh, How was the rest of the conference? Uh, good. It was good. Um, my first general assembly with them. Some uh, off the top of my head. There's a a resolution. Well, that at the at the time of this recording has not yet been officially fully voted upon it got sent back to uh for revisions but there's one an emergency resolution came about um to condemn anti-trans legislation and and protect the lives of trans people which is encouraging so yeah it was it was encouraging a full conference of people talking about promoting justice in, in all its categories welcome and inclusion for everybody um open and affirming for lgbtq folks so it was it was the antithesis to what you might expect a conservative evangelical conference to be like, but uh, firmly rooted in in scripture and theology and and the you know Christian tradition, the communion. So it was thoroughly Christian, uh, yet full of full of justice and inclusion and welcome, which was encouraging uh, for me, a breath of fresh air for sure, and I think gave me hope that the you know the church has not been completely hijacked. Uh-huh. At this point, well, that's great. That's uh, kind of the opposite of what we're <laughs> talking about now, right? Yes. So, yeah. Uh, why don't you explain uh, Christian Reconstructionism, if you can, for our listeners who may not be familiar with that as a concept? Sure. Well, Christian Reconstructionism is kind of a, a specific form of what is more broadly referred to as Dominionism. Uh, but the idea of Christian Reconstructionism, which is linked pretty closely to – we've talked about him before, but R.J. Rushdooney was a sort of a Bible scholar slash crank who became really influential with a, a book called uh, Institutes of Biblical Law, I think is the name, and is is very influential in homeschooling circles. But they, it, it, they have a complete uh, opposition to – I mean, basically to democracy as such. And when they talk about reconstruction, they, they mean kind of reconstructing this idea of a, you know, former 
Christian control or or domination of the of the total cultural and political sphere, right? That everything should be under um, Christian rule. So obviously, a lot of overlap with the things we've already talked about in the statement, but um, they they have an idea that you know blasphemy, homosexuality, adultery can all be capital offenses executed by the state. Uh, so it's it's a pretty fringe, radical, uh, far right uh, movement. Reconstructionism is also like Gary North is is a figure very associated with it, and they had a they have a press. Um, I'm trying to remember the name uh, Inst- Institute for Christian Economics that that has put out a bunch of books that get recommended by people who are not themselves reconstructionists and would not, you know, agree with some of the more far out radical ideas. But nevertheless, you'll hear, I mean, folks like um, Denny Burke, right, who's mm-hmm. with TGC, a fairly, you know, moderate conservative, pretty influential. Um, he'll recommend books from the Institute of Christian Economics, right? So they have, they, they kind of punch above their weight in terms of in direct influence, right? Um, the Christian Reconstructionists, but they're, you know, kind of more broadly, some folks who wouldn't agree with all of the details of the Reconstructionist movement, but are nevertheless kind of sympathetic to the overall um, movement or or the overall framework, um, tend to take the label Dominionist, which, you know, like the name implies, uh, suggests that it's the call of Christians to have dominion over all aspects of society. Right. 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 Um, and so sphere sovereignty is this idea that's kind of central to Rush Dooney. He, uh, he didn't coin the term, uh, but he, he used it and kind of built his uh, political theology around the concept. And that is not the very next point, but one of the next points that we'll be talking about in the, in the statement. Um, although the current form of the statement uh, actually doesn't, doesn't use that phrase exactly, right? They've cleaned up at the titling of the affirmations to I mean not really distance themselves but it that make it just a, just a tiny bit less uh, obvious what they're what they're referencing right because you know somebody might look at sphere sovereignty and decide to Google that uh, and then associate <laughs> it with some of the more unsavory things that came from Russia whereas spheres of authority is is a little bit more benign uh, and innocent sounding but with the same. Yeah, precisely. Yeah. Uh, so we uh, we were finishing up Article 7 in the last episode when um, I had a tornado warning at my house. Uh, so we'll, we'll jump into Article 8, uh, which is the Christian nationalists' view of the purpose of civil government. Uh, So they start with the affirmation. We affirm that God's purpose for civil government is to establish justice for his glory and the good of all people. We affirm that unjust laws harm people and that just laws reflect the character of God and point people toward their need for a savior. Um, Which you know, on its face is not terrible. I mean, I think we would also affirm that unjust laws harm people. <laughs> um, I don't know if I would say that the, the purpose of just laws is to point people towards their need for a savior in so much that just laws are to promote justice. Uh, right. Uh, but all in all, right? It's it, yeah. Well, it's this is this subordination of the significance of temporal existence, right? The idea that uh, just laws and unjust laws are important because of the you know real world impacts that they have on people's lives. That they're minimizing or or brushing that aside in favor of. Um, no, just laws matter because uh, they can point people toward 
their need for a savior. Almost the concept of, you know, how the the biblical concept of law functions in a lot of Calvinist um, theology, that right. the law is not there to point you toward what ethical life looks like. It's so that you'll beat your head against the law by your and recognize your inability to fulfill it and therefore your need for a savior, right? They're kind right. of taking that uh, classical Calvinist uh, conception of the relationship of law and gospel and imposing right. it on to um, the existence of government and how our assessment of uh, the justness or injustice of laws um, function in the in the civil realm. Right. And it's another one of those areas where language can be so slippery uh, because a lot of the architects of this statement, right, would point to um, people who are doing the activist work to oppose unjust laws would call that that kind of thing woke or critical race theory or, or anything mm-hmm. like that, right? Like the work of uh, Martin Luther King Jr. and, and modern day civil rights activists um, are are using the same language, opposing unjust laws. Um, but we know that you know, in order to understand what somebody has written or said, look at some of the other things that these people have written or said. And the architects of this, if you follow them on on Twitter or listen to other things, they're not like they're not trying to uh, end mass incarceration necessarily, right? They're not trying to uh, look at the unjust laws that um, benefit uh, white people and predominantly uh, discriminate against people of color. Um, you know they're. There, if you were to ask them, maybe what might be an example of an unjust law, I'm just speculating here, but I imagine the response would be something more like uh, the uh, the mandate vaccine mandates or the um, <laughs> the lockdowns during COVID. Right? These are unjust laws. Um, so there's a lot of no no fault divorce. <laughs> right. Right. Exactly. Exactly. So when you start getting into the, the actual weeds and the content of, of what constitutes just and unjust laws, I think we see very different uh, interpretations, applications. But on its face, it's it's not awful. Right. There's also an instructive difference between the earlier published version and the current published version. Um, so now it ends, unjust laws harm people. And the just laws reflect the character of God and point people toward their need for a savior. Originally, that read, we affirm that unjust laws, parentheses, e.g. those which permit child sacrifice, end parentheses, <laughs> often debauch a people. So that's an interesting um, – right. It's not that they. It's not that the unjust laws harm people in terms of concrete harm to them, even though their example is – a really extreme example of where an unjust law, if you can call child sacrifice a law, right? It's, I mean, it's the allowance of, I guess, but it, that's a, that's a really extreme example, right? right? It's, there is no realistic comparison between that and the laws of the United States. Well, but except but of course they'll say, yes. right, right. They'll say, you know, legalized abortion, right? Yes. Um, yes. But I think, and you know, we pointed this out uh, either last episode or the one before, but that there's a kind of a QAnon adjacent quality to a lot of this. That they right. ki- they kind of do think that there is a lot of um, you know child sex trafficking, child uh, child sacrifice that that kind of thing is is a live not just a live concern in the United States, but that's kind of what Christians should be focusing their attention on. As opposed right. to, you know, things with measurable impact on um, society broadly, right? They've kind of bought into some uh, conspiracy theorizing, I think, about what's uh, about what's common versus uncommon in the United States. Um, but even when they use such a harsh example, there they, they don't say that these unjust laws harm people, even though that's a case of measurable harm, but that they debauch a people. Right. Which right. should inform how we understand the word harm in the current version. I don't think they mean that it harms people in the sense that people can get hurt. I think they mean that there's that it kind of creates a moral stain on that people. Correct. Correct. Right. That's their and that's their broader concern. Correct. 
which, and I don't stop me if this gets way too deep into the weeds on this, but it's fascinating to, to think about this through the lens of Jonathan Haidt's work in the righteous mind in his, his moral, his categories for moral philosophy um, in the way that he sort of delineates between conservatives and liberals based on how they prioritize these five sets of values. Um, and I, I'm speaking off the top of my head. It's been quite a while since I've, I've read the book, um, but he identifies harm, fairness, purity, tradition, and authority. I, I Let me look these up. It's pretty close. Yeah. Harm and care, fairness and reciprocity, uh, in-group loyalty, authority and respect and purity and sanctity. Right. And so he talks about how and he, he does this from a sociological standpoint. He's not a theologian. Uh, he's a moral philosopher um, and studies it from a, a socialistic perspective. But he says that generally speaking, conservatives weigh all five of those relatively equally. Right. So something is moral if it uh, follows traditional authority. Um, something is moral if it doesn't cause harm, if it's fair if it doesn't violate community standards of purity and sanctity, um, and if it remains um, loyal to to the in-group, whereas people who are liberal tend to emphasize harm and fairness um, much higher, much more highly than the other three. Um, and so I think it's, it's interesting, right, that the people who are the archetypes of this statement certainly would identify as conservative and their, their thinking, their framework for this really fits into that. Uh, but they identify harm, as you've said, as some sort of violation of purity, of, of sanctity, um, mm-hmm. maybe even authority if, if you get down deep enough. Whereas we, as we talk about that and we see harm, we think of concrete harm, measurable harm um, to people. And so it's just one of those examples of how people can use very similar words or, or identical words and mean very, very different things by it. And then the second, the second half of that change is really just kind of cleaning up the language a bit. But you know, originally they say just laws have an evangelistic impact, which is kind of vague language. So then they change that to just laws reflect the character of God and point people toward their need for a savior. So kind of that uh, dual use of the law uh, with right. Barry Calvin, as I said. Right. Yeah. And then so their their denial. Uh, we deny that the purpose of civil government is to establish a secular, neutral, or godless order. We deny that any government is capable of neutrality as every individual and system has moral preferences and functional gods, i.e. ultimate allegiances and ultimate standards by which they judge reality. We further deny that natural law is a different standard from God's moral and universal law summarily comprehended in the Ten Commandments. Um, so a lot going on there. Um, we see the, the secular boogeyman that we talked about a little bit in our last episode. Right, right. Um, and sort of, I mean – a pretty explicit rejection of, you know, sort of the, the founding, the philosophy of the founders, um, right. Mm -hmm. Who were, there's, there's obviously perennial debate over the extent to which the founders were, were faithful practicing Christians and the principles on which they, they built the government. Um, But it's, it's pretty undeniably clear that they were not, trying to establish a state religion, at least. Uh, they were trying not to establish a state church. Um, and I think it's a good argument that they were pretty explicitly trying to establish a secular government in the sense of it not being an explicitly religious government. They, they, they talk about, you know, providence and the creator and all of that, right? So they, they, they use language that pays homage to some sort of belief in something. We know that a lot of them were deists, um, but this seems to be a pretty explicit rejection of uh, the predominant philosophy of the founders. Um, would you agree with that? 
Yeah, yeah, straightforwardly. It's it's interesting to me in general to to just to think about sort of the leftist or left-ish uh, stance toward um, America, Americana, the the founders, right? Because I I have the instinct a lot to point to the Enlightenment tradition behind the founders, the the kind of radical. Um, you know, for all their for all their failings, right? And we can point to those. You know, uh, a bunch of slave owners. Uh, the um, the Constitution is sort of uh, constructed for ensconcing the rights of um, wealthy white men, right? Right, right. And so the so there's this this tendency, this very strong uh, tendency on the left to just be sort of like. Uh, well, America sucks. It was never, you know, you know, make America great again. Well, America was never great, and um, yeah. I I understand that tendency too, and I I think I fall into it a lot. But I'm not a. I'm I'm not sure that that's a holistic understanding, right? Um, there's also a lot of radical potential in the ideas behind the founding of the United States, right? And I think that the French Revolution shows this because it was it was just taking the same idea kind of one step forward and it's been terrifying to conservatives ever since, right? right. Um, and I think there's a sense in which the Haitian uh, Revolution is kind of taking the American idea the next step forward. I think there's a sense in which um, uh, re- the Reconstruction is taking the American idea the next step forward. And so when you go back and read the American founding through, for instance, Reconstruction, right, Um, and the Reconstruction uh, amendments to – or the post-Civil War amendments to the Constitution, that you you end up seeing kind of the radical – the revolutionary potential that is there. And, you know, I wonder if the left is maybe not doing itself any favors by – being staunchly anti-American because right. that, I mean, that becomes something that like right here, we can see this is a far right group, a far right movement who can kind of join hands with the radical left and say, yeah, man, screw the founders. Right. They didn't understand anything. We hate democracy. Right. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Cause if you look at some of the, uh, like Martin Luther King, uh, junior um, and others, they talked about. In a, I'm I'm pretty loosely paraphrasing here, but holding America accountable to keep the promises that it's made, right? Live right, up right. to the promises of life, liberty, the pursuit of happiness. Uh, keep the promise that all people are are created equal, right? Um, so using that language and tapping into that idea uh, of let's let's live into this let's let's live up to the promises that we've made to these ideals that we hold so dearly, um, and and bring them forward and live into it in ways that we have failed to do for so long. Um, so I agree with you. I think there's at least some utility there, but also some truth. If we really do believe that all people are created equal, that's that's something noble towards which we can work towards um you know so to say that it it, sure that the constitution as it was written was was uh very problematic in the sense that uh you know black people slaves only counted for three-fifths of a person right that uh women were disenfranchised and black people were disenfranchised um but some things therein are worth striving toward uh actually fulfilling and living into. And then the second, the second half of this denial, no, not even the second half, the kind of the middle of the denial. Um, it, it's their critique of neutrality, right? And the, the critique of the concept of the secular as neutral and basically mm-hmm. saying that that's an impossible um, aim because nothing is, is neutral, right? If you don't ensconce, Christianity as the public religion, then you're go- you're going to have a functional religion. Right. Um, 
What what do you think of that and similar critiques? It, it's it's really popular, right? It, it when we say, I mean, I remember even before Christian nationalism was called Christian nationalism before it was a thing, I, I was arguing against like we can't legislate Christian morality, and then my conservative interlocutors would be like, well, we're going to legislate some morality. might as well be Christian, right? In a sense, it's true. I mean, there really is no such thing as, as pure neutrality, but nobody's arguing for, for true neutrality. We're not saying people should just be able to do whatever they want. Um, but to say that, that secularism is a religion in and of itself, right? I just, I think it's it's a a cute and powerful rhetorical device. I don't think it's accurate, right? I don't think you know most secular people. You say, oh well, you know, you, you, I mean, everybody worships something. Okay, right? I get it. Everybody worships something by by where we devote our time and our resources and our energy. To say that it's a religion is is doing some sleight of hand work with language uh, that I understand why they do it because it's you know it, it's it's a cute rhetorical turn of phrase. I don't think it's accurate. I don't think it's helpful. Right. Well. I think I think the reason that they do it is people in society really see the benefits of secularism. Right. And so to argue against it, you kind of have to say, well, it, there's this it smuggles in something with it. It does. It's not it's not what you think it is, because what you think it is, is actually like obviously desirable for a lot of people and in a lot of ways. The idea that some like your neighbor's religion is not imposing um onto your private life, right? That like if your neighbor doesn't believe in alcohol or pork, that nevertheless you can still go buy bacon and, and beer. Like people see the benefit of that in their day-to-day life. Right. Uh, and so you you kind of have to engage in some sleight of hand if you want to uh, take on such a naturally attractive type of uh type of opponent. Right. Right. And it's similar to what we talked no, about. What I, no, you go ahead. So what we talked about in the last episode with that that sleight of hand move where secular goes from being not just mm. um a religious to being anti religious, right? Not just agnostic, right. but anti theistic. Similar movement going on here. Right, precisely. Um, but what what the critique misses, right? The idea that you can't establish. Let's see, what do they say? That we deny that any government is capable of neutrality, as every individual and system has moral preferences. That's not what the system of secular democracy tries to ensconce, right? It, it's not a dispositive vision of what is moral that is kind of imposed on everyone, but we're just going to call it secular. That's not what's on offer. What's on offer is that the the public sphere is a site of contestation that we're all trying through, through our votes, but also through persuasion, through um, cultural influence that we're, that it's various groups who are not um, solidly constituted groups, right? Like, in some ways, I align with this group because we have, you know, X in common. But in other ways, I'm, I'm in alignment with this other group because we have Y in common. And so, like, my allegiances in terms of um, political identity or political preference, that shifts or is, like, that's kind of divvied up in various ways already. So it's not like you have these kind of solid blocks um, that are that are unchanging – I mean, certainly not unchanging across time, right? Coalitions change from election to election to election, right? Um, But they're not even stable like in the moment. Like I have multiple different sort of political loyalties and political liabilities that I'm navigating in all of my decision making around voting, but also around, you know, how I uh, bring pressure onto the school board or city council or, 
you know, to try to get sidewalks in front of my house or not, or to try to zone my backyard for chickens. Um, the, like these are the kinds of like actual political decisions that people are making. Um, or that, you know, these are some prosaic examples of that. And I have giant trash trucks emptying dumpsters just up the street from me. Um, you should do something so, with your political, you know, you should we exercise gotta your political will. We got to do something about this. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, with a, with a BB gun, get off my lawn. <laughs> but that there, there's not a um, – like there's not an attempt or an idea in the current, fo- current form of government to establish certain moral preferences. Rather, there is a process by which we can fight over – my moral preferences versus yours versus anybody else's and none of us actually gets fully what we want. Right. Right. And the the point of the system is to adjudicate uh, and to enable uh, disagreements among our moral preferences. Right. Um, And, and so the whole idea that like you can't be neutral, well, no, we don't, it's not, the idea is not that you have a, um, an outcome that is morally neutral and that therefore impacts everyone in some neutral way, but that the process should be neutral so that everyone with their own particular moral preferences or proclivities or gods, as they say, can kind of make a showing for that vision on, you know, on behalf of that vision, but not impose that vision on, on others. And then, you know, I'm, I'm getting close to the end of my soapbox on this, but, you know, closely aligned, they don't exactly use this language, but this is my big frustration with um, tyranny of the majority. The concept of tyranny of the majority is that the majority is not a, well, I have two, two big frustrations with it. One, we've never come close to a tyranny of the majority in a democratic society. What we typically have is the tyranny of the minority because you have this very small group of people who have outsized influence on the democratic system, the electoral system. And so I would, you know, but if I'm weighing my evils, I would much rather have a tyranny of the majority than have, you know, these hundred billionaires who actually craft all of our laws and decide everything. And, you know, so I mean, tyranny of the majority, like that would be a step in the right direction. Right? right, but actually, the tyranny of the majority is not a problem. It does not exist because the minority and the majority in a in a vibrant democracy are not stable, coherent categories. Right, because you're not explicitly defined by your by being on the majority side or the minority side, like preferences shift culture changes coalitions uh come together um cha- you know the idea of tyranny of the majority in a country where um we have a two-party system and literally every presidential election is highly competitive and nobody knows who's gonna win right like it's con it's this constant seesaw right. um and that's the nature of, of a system where you're appealing to voters and you can change over time, you form coalitions, you form alliances, you break alliances, you disappoint voters. Um, and, you know, I feel like I, I keep I'm de- I feel like I'm defending the basics of democracy, like I'm an eighth grade civics teacher. But that's what they're attacking. That's what this, right. this statement is is up against. And so I feel like the eighth grade civics teacher is in a great position to say, kids, you think you've come up with a, a radical alternative. This has all been thought of before. <laughs> right. Right. However, th- there is something to the fact that as a society, we do establish to some degrees ultimate allegiances and ultimate standards by which we judge reality, right? That has to happen for functioning society. We have to say, okay, like these are the kinds of things we will accept and these are the kinds of things we will not accept. Uh, and we do that through um, – laws and customs um, and statutes and, and all of that. Um, well, and I, rights I, frameworks. Yes. Yes. Um, and so, I mean, they're right in a sense that for a functioning society, a society does need to say there are certain, there are boundaries, right? There's, there's some level of right and wrong. There are some categories uh, to which we're going to say, this is not acceptable 
behavior within our our group, within our our our, our coalition, within our society. Um, but the whole thing reminds me of that uh, the the paradox of tolerance. If you've you've ever heard that before, right? right? This idea that in order for that society that you've talked about to exist, where where competing ideas can compete in the marketplace, there has to be a certain level of, of intolerance of intolerance, right? Right. Um, You, you can't have some people who say, I don't think women should be able to vote and have a society in which women have like can compete in the marketplace, right? At some point, we have to say no, like that's not acceptable with this vision for everybody to have equal say. Um, and I think the authors of this know that, right? And so they they say, well, since since every society is going to have boundaries, every society is going to have. Uh, a, some framework for morality and ethics, what is allowed and what is disallowed, that might as well be Christian, right? If it's going to be something, right. it might as well be right. Christian. It, right. might, it might as well come from the ultimate lawgiver and reflect uh, the the natural and, and moral law given to us because why not? Um, so I, I think that in a sense, they are right. However, and actually, and I think they're right in saying that that vision is incompatible with the vision that you've described of democracy, of a, of a secular nation where all ideas are allowed to compete. Because all, you, you can't have a society that is governed strictly by a particular interpretation of God's law and allow all ideas to com- compete in the marketplace and coalitions to, to form and break um, and people to have a say, those things are mutually incompatible. And so with that, I agree with these authors. Those things can't go hand in hand. I just think that they're choosing the wrong one. Do we want to uh, get into the categories of law, natural law, moral law, universal law, because all of those, like those, are big categories doing a lot of work that many people may not know. Mm-hmm. You know, these are these are pretty significant, especially within um, theonomy and theocracy and all of these things. Um, you know, what constitutes natural law? What constitutes moral law? Uh, they use them as if they're just everyday phrases that everybody knows what they are, but they're they're really sort of fraught terms um, that can be used and have been used in, in pretty different ways. Well, sure. Yes. I, you know, the, the general definition or concept of natural law is, this is going to be confusing because I, we mean law in terms of, you know, like a lawgiver, right? So we mean this all within the framework of morals, right? But natural right. law is that which is discernible by human reason, Right? Is that the same definition that you operate off of? Yes. And so it's kind of the the law, the moral law that would be perceptible by a a you know enlightened philosopher, right? Like Aquinas deals in natural law. Right. You you observe the world around you, and it becomes clear through observation certain things. It's not just whatever is natural, right? But, but what creation and nature is tended toward. Um, so a, a common example of, of natural law that, that's often used is um, natural law is used against same-sex relations, right? Because if you look at nature and the way in which the world is ordered, the propagation of any given species or the propagation of humankind is dependent upon a male and a female coming together in sexual union in a way that can produce progeny. Right. So, so natural law then dictates that the, the proper order for sexual relations is a male and a female coming together. 
um, natural law theologians, you know, you know, will get more in depth than that. But I think that's a, a pretty standard example of the way that natural law is often used. And they'll use similar things um, in reference to, you know, uh, gender hierarchy, right? If you look at at society throughout time, men mm-hmm. have been the ones who have gone to war, have earned the money, have run societies. The women have been the ones who have been subservient, um, the the helpers, and all of that. Ergo, this is the way it ought to be. So here's the way that it usually is. Here's the way that it's been throughout history. Ergo, this is the way that it ought to be. Would you say that's a, a a fairly accurate representation of, of natural law. Yeah. Yeah, okay. that's right. Um, whereas the, you know, God's moral law and God's universal law, and what do they say? As summarily comprehended in the Ten Commandments. Right. And that that's a, a more restrictive, like, we are looking at the, you know, biblical revelation and you know, what is revealed about God as reflected in scripture, um, which is typically a more, um, more specific, but sometimes more restrictive definition of right, wrong, right, um, moral, right. immoral, et cetera. And so they, they want to identify the two, which is to say that there's not a difference between like our revealed moral precepts as Christian, right? It's not some particularist ethic, but that it is um, identical to and can be mapped directly onto the nat- you know, natural, um, observable moral truths that we see in, in the world. Which is interesting because I would say that some of the things in the Ten Commandments are not readily ob- observable in nature. Right. For example, if you if you use the examples we used earlier, like the Ten Commandments limiting, if you say that they limit sexual relations to one man and one woman in covenant relationship with each other, most societies didn't have that. I mean, I mean, polygamy was and continues to be in lots of places the natural phenomenon. Right. Um, right. Similarly, uh, the worship of only one God. It's hard to say that that monotheism is natural law. When you look at the history of, of people throughout time and space, uh, polytheism really has been far more predominant in human culture and society than monotheism has been. Um, so to equate natural law and the Ten Commandments I think there's even some contradictions there. Now, I mean, maybe I'm going to get taken to task by somebody who's really specialized in in Christian natural law and say, oh, no, 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 here's actually why uh, monotheism and um, monogamy are in fact natural law. Um, But I think natural law ends up becoming a a canard and a lot of things that you can basically fill with whatever you want it to fill. You can find examples that support that. and it's not actually it, – it's not a distinct category because we, we could point to things like exceptions to the rule. Well, here are – you know, we would say that uh, gay and lesbian and transgender people exist in nature, right? They are – they actually happen. That they're, They are real phenomenon that exist in nature. Right. <laughs> uh, therefore right. – um, or we would say look at these women – who are gifted in uh, preaching and leadership and administration, who can um, lead organizations and countries, who can fight in battle, uh, who are sometimes stronger than men, as examples in nature that contradict the natural law. And they would say, oh, well, anomalies don't negate. So it, it, it becomes an empty signifier um, that doesn't really do uh, – it, it, it's a, it's a canard and a cudgel to enforce a particular vision, regardless of how much counter evidence there might be. Right. Right. Natural law is what seems to be the case to me. <laughs> yes. Yeah, exactly. 
Right. Exactly. Um, no, I think the more interesting question for me is what what are they trying to do by including that? Why why this denial? Well, probably, probably because again, to undercut secularism, which says that we can determine for ourselves what is right and good and just and moral for our society, right? They're saying, no, there has to be some standard. So we deny that humans of their own volition can create the standard by which human conduct is judged, um, can create the, the moral foundation by which we judge right and wrong. I, I think they're probably getting at the idea. They're denying that there's any ability within a society itself apart from some sort of divine revelation to say what's right and wrong. Right. And, and in particular denying that the, that the divine revelation as they perceive it is like a tribal or sectarian or fideistic. Uh, yeah. It's not something that's particular to Christians, right? Like it's not like we we have our Christian view, Christian ethic, but that that does not, um, or but that that's just one view among many, which is right. what it is in a in a secular society. Um, and so, if if that is going to be an actual socially dominant view over others to the point that you can execute law on the basis of your revealed religion then you have to you kind of have to assert that actually no it also comports with you know the god of the philosophers right or with nat- naturalistic reasoning mm-hmm. right? right this is what the intelligent atheists would believe if they were not deceived by the devil <laughs> right right and then looking at the uh looking at the scripture verses that they cite this i feel like this is um really some of their weaker work across the entire document because really what it is is um well there are several passages from the epistles right first uh, corinthians 10 31 galatians 3 24 colossians 3 first peter 4 second peter 3 18 um and 3 18 is kind of its own thing but the rest of those um uh, galatians is kind of its own thing as well it um that was not in the original published version but came in later and actually, I think it's probably the most relevant to what they're doing in this section. Um, but then the First Corinthians, Colossians, First Peter passages, all three of them are really just sort of doing the same thing. Um, the First Corinthians passage says, so whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. Colossians says, whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, giving thanks to God the fa- and Father by him. Um First Peter four, each of you should use whatever gift you have received to serve others. That one really seems out of left field, but I think all three of those are kind of in the same category of basically just saying being Christian is not about just like religion, right? It's not just about like ritual, going to church, whatever. It, it, it touches all aspects of your life, whatever you do in word or deed, whether you eat or drink, right? It's all kind of in that key. Yeah. Um, and, and so they're reasoning from that. You know, I'm giving them a lot of credit here, assuming that the Bible passages are actually like the basis, and then they they get to the affirmations and denials from that. But the idea is that they're reasoning from those kinds of like um, your Christianity is not just a religious thing; it is an all of life thing. They're reasoning right. from that to actually civil laws are. You know that the the purpose of civil government is to ha- to address all of life, right? That because religion is an all of life thing, there's not it, like the whole idea. There's not a neutral or secular right. part right. of the world. Yeah. So what's fascinating in this is you hear very similar type thing from say uh liberation theology right or Mm -hmm. you know so on on both 
you know, to, to use the binaries, the left and the right, you have very similar ideas, both pushing against this sort of individualized, escapist, um, personalized religion, which is just, you know, I believe the right things about God so I can go to heaven. But no, my life ought to, this ought to extend from my personal belief into every aspect of my life, right? Um, at, at General Assembly for Disciples of Christ, uh, I went to a Sunday service where William Barber preached, right? Uh, preached a phenomenal sermon on how faith ought to inform the way that we uh, interact with the world around us to adjust, to, to address injustices, right? And so as a concept, there's a lot of agreement here among the right and the left contra this sort of squishy centrism. Religion is this private thing only between me and God, both saying, no, it really is something that demands whole life allegiance and practice, but in very, very different directions and applications, which makes it really hard to talk about. Right. So that's why we get some of the, the, the right wing Christian nationalists pointing towards the, the social justice liberation theolog- theologians and, um, you know, what we would, might say the Christian left activists, Jim Wallace and others who, who argue that their basis for, for political engagement is, is the gospel of Jesus and the liberating word of, of Christ and, and all that. So, well, that's Christian nationalism too, right? So um, it, and it puts people and then you have the people in the middle who oppose Christian nationalism and they point to both sides and say, I'm neither right nor left, but I'm diagonal um, to quote <laughs> Preston Sprinkle in a, in a recent tweet of his, right. Um, or, or Scott Sauls, who was like, you know, I, I'm too liberal for the progressives and, uh, or no, I'm too liberal for the conservatives, too conservative for the liberals, you know, just like Jesus. Um, so it's this, this weird whirlwind of, as you mentioned, competing alignments. There's areas where, you know, strictly speaking as a concept, I agree with a lot of that, that, that faith is more than just a, an individualistic me and God only in the privacy of my house thing. Um, but I strongly disagree with the application of, you know, then legislating the Ten Commandments from, you know, on the national stage. So it gets very messy and complicated when we look at the different areas of alignment and disalignment among these different groups. Sorry, that was rambling, but I think it's fascinating. No, no, you're exactly right. But then, yeah, the, the rest of these, uh, the rest of these passages. Um, the, the, the one in Matthew is, is, is interesting, right? He that is not with me is against me. And he, that he, who gathers, who does not gather with me scatters. Right. Um, right. So you, everybody worships something, right? <laughs> I think that's the basis of it. Everybody worships something, but they left out. He who is not against me is with me. <laughs> the, the, the other time that Jesus said that. <laughs> right, right, right. Uh, uh, yeah, yeah, and then the 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 second Peter one, I just don't understand. It it comes from the uh, salutation at the end, right? The bene- kind of benediction, and it says, "But grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. To Him be the glory both now and to the day of eternity. Amen." <laughs> yeah, I I just, don't know. Jesus is Lord Lord over all. I, I think is all you really get from that. Um, yeah. Either that or it's a typo, and they meant to put a different scripture reference in. Uh, I'm trying to like play with the numbers and see if yeah. there's something else that might make more sense. But it's plausible. <laughs> uh, you know, you have a good two. statement when your uh, <laughs> when your passages cause people to say, "Is that a typo? That can't be what they mean, right?" Oh wait, hold on, hold on. Um, I want to figure this out now. Second Peter two eighteen. Uh. <laughs> it could be anything. It could be uh, 
First Peter three eighteen could be Second Peter three seventeen. For they three eighty one bombastic they promised them freedom with they themselves or slaves of corruption yeah okay so verse 19 second uh, peter 3 second peter 2 18 and 19 for they speak bombastic nonsense and which licentious desires of the flesh they entice people who have just escaped from those who live in error they promised them freedom but they themselves are slaves of corruption for people are slaves to whatever masters them I think that fits better. Uh, you know, that's that is that does fit better. That's that's, <laughs> should, that's plausible. Should we submit this to them? Yeah, you like, need to su- you submit this. Yeah, two eighteen and nineteen. <laughs> oh, I think we're doing. See, this is how uh, this is how text criticism works, <laughs> right? You go you go through the manuscripts, you find something that doesn't work, you you conjecture a hypothesis. I believe it's this for this reason, you know, and then and then you. You don't correct it, in the, but you put a scribal emendation to the to the right. side and say, author may have meant. Except in this case, we could actually go to the authors and ask, but I, I don't really want to. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I'm sure they would take our good ideas and run with them. I'm sure they would, yeah. Maybe they'll you know listen to the rest of this and, and, and just scrap the project altogether since they realize that we're <laughs> such astute, uh, you know. Students of Christian nationalism. Yeah, that's right. But no, like I said, I think uh, I think the Galatians passage is maybe the most actually significant. Which again, it's a case of they published it with a list of verses, and then several months later, several months, sometime later, came along and just tucked in another one right in the middle. But the one that they tucked in is actually more relevant to the to the passage than the rest. Which again shows how biblically based all of this is. Right? It's not. They're they're writing out of a political theology and then finding verses to support it. I, I know I'm belaboring the point, but you know, so Galatians three 24, um, Paul talking about the law at, you know, meaning the old Testament law, right. The category right. he's using, uh, Galatians fa- fascinating book. The way that he's using law here is, um, Lot, lot to say about it that I will not get into, but this, the kind of famous, uh, Lutheran passage, Calvinist passage, or they they make, good use of it, Luther in particular, but so the law was our guardian until Christ came that we might be justified by faith. Right. Right. And kind of famously that phrase that's translated guardian here, um, it, it's uh, pedagogos, right? Uh, which is where we get the word pedagogy for like a philosophy of education, but, you know, literally would be the, um, the, the one who would take a child by the hand to school and back is a you know, yeah. common illustration for how the pedagogos functions, but lead, leads you to the to the truth. But you know the application of that to which you know that explicitly theological passage and concept to well that's that's what the function of civil law is for. It really does underline and emphasize how how overwhelmingly theocratic and christo-fascist really their thought is like what their their project is is it's no we're going to make the bible the law book for for society and these theological concepts are going to become the political philosophy that replaces you know the republic of the united states right right you know it's a a thoroughly and and obviously anti-democratic uh project Yes, absolutely, absolutely. And as we've talked about before, I feel like I've, you know, we both have our our soapboxes. Mine is so selective. You know, they say that the Old Testament law is what they want to legislate, but but it's not debt forgiveness, right? It's not social welfare. It's not welcoming the stranger uh, and the immigrant as yourself. It's not caring for um, the least of these or, or any of the the social. Um, justice-oriented things from the law that we talked about in our mini-series in the Bible that we started and never finished. Um, <laughs> but th- those aren't the things that they want to legislate, right? It's the sex stuff. Uh, it's the blasphemy stuff. It, it really, it, it's all language to promote and enhance and protect white Christian white Protestant supremacy. It, it's about self. Pre- inherently, it's about self-preservation, 
right? It's about pre- right. preserving themselves and their current status in, in society. Um, I, I would maybe have more respect for it. You know, if they said, you know, no, we, you know, we're, we're Christian nationals. We, we believe the law ought to be the law of the land. And so therefore, you know, we're going to support the, a jubilee, right? We're going to support the forgiveness of debt every seven years. Uh, but all of that stuff is so conspicuously absent. It's just a reminder of uh, how much of a facade this is for the, for the acquisition and preservation of power. And it, that leads into some, some stuff I was thinking about earlier today, uh, which is there, there really are, there's, there's multiple ways to, to have faith, drive political engagement, right? Um, they're, they're emphasizing for us one way. Faith drives political engagement because I believe in the supremacy of Christ and therefore of my interpretation of scripture. And I am going to impose that on everybody else because Christ is uh, sovereign over all. He's given us dominion. And so we're going to protect ourselves and our beliefs and our way of life. And we're going to use violence to do it. And then there is the the strand of um, liberation theology and its adjacents, which says, no, our, our faith should in, impact and influence our political engagement, but it's going to do so in a way that's not self-preserving, but is in service to those who are most marginalized and harmed, right? So, so both sides recognize right. that politics is about power. Like that's not that's not debated. Both sides recognize politics is about power. It's about, is that power used and wielded to preserve me and my way of life? Or is it used mm. in service uh, to those who are being harmed by the systems of the world? And when you f- frame it that way, at least to me, it becomes remarkably clear which one looks more like Christ, right? Which one Jesus yeah. did. Uh, you know, Jesus didn't. You know, he, he emptied himself, kenosis and all of that. But the power that he had was used in service to those. It was never about protecting himself or, or the status quo or the kingdom. It was always about service. And so when you look at it that way, you, you can make a biblical – maybe you can make a biblical case for both. The Christian nationalism case is, is really light on lots of the Bible. But I think it becomes remarkably clear when you look at it through that lens, which one is more Christ-like. Ah, blow me away. That is, that is a fantastic soapbox. This has been another episode of All the Rage in our deep dive into the statement on Christian nationalism in the gospel. Uh, we hope it has been enlightening for you. Uh, we are always grateful for the support and the discussion and the shares. Uh, and as always, for our patrons who support it and help underwrite the costs of production and all of that. Uh, so we are looking forward to catching you next time. Thanks. Thank you for listening to All the Rage, a podcast investigating the Christian far right. All the Rage is recorded and produced by Thomas Horrocks and Nick Don Stanton Rourke. Find more, including Patreon and an open to the public Discord server at the links in the description. The intro outro music is Dweller on the Threshold by Neolor, used under CCBY license. See you next time.